Welcome to Tool Talk from Exegetical Tools, where we discuss ingenious practices and immense resources to help you rightly divide the word of truth. Here today with Todd Scasewater, pastor and research fellow for the Center for Christian Social Ethics, founder of Exegetical Tools and co-founder of Fontes Press, friend of mine, um, husband to Desi, father of two. Todd, how you doing? I'm doing well, and I appreciate you having me back on the podcast after all those previous episodes. Oh yeah, man. Yeah, you know, it just just main feature here. They just listen <laughs> skyrocket when you're on. No, no, it's it's good, and uh, I hope people are finding that helpful. And uh, I always learn something, so I, I have lots to learn, though. So hopefully, everyone else is learning too. Today, we're going to learn about something that's maybe a little less familiar, and so hopefully, will be really advantageous uh, for most of our audience. We're talking today about discourse analysis. Really quickly, just uh, we'll flesh this out, but really quickly, define for us discourse analysis. Yeah, as concisely as I can, discourse analysis is the examination of language above the level of the sentence. Okay, so we're we're thinking here about you know you take first year Greek for example, if we're talking about biblical Greek, and you're learning grammar. Uh, you, you were thinking about. Second, you're Greek, and you're learning syntax. You're learning how phrases work together and how particular forms might be used within a sentence. And then so is it right to think of it in terms of levels or maybe even like zooming out? Yeah, that's fair. Uh, you know, you can zoom in all the way down to the phone. You know, uh, the difference between break and broke is just uh, a phoneme. And so it, within words, you have blocks, and above the phoneme, you have... Uh, higher levels all the way up to the sentence, and then you have levels up to the paragraph, to the section, to the division, to an entire discourse. So all of language is structured in these levels. And discourse analysis is interested in levels above the sentence, but uh, that also involves the nitty-gritty details of uh, the sentence and below as well. Uh, so that kind of brings in what you'd call bottom uh, bottom up and uh, top down approach. You kind of start. You go to the bottom, most lower level, all the way up to the highest level, and then back down again. And it's kind of a dialectical uh, dialogue between the top level and the lower levels as you try to figure out how every part of the discourse fits together. Okay, so that is probably really, really interesting to a segment of our audience, and then another one is kind of scratching their heads. Those are a little less familiar with this kind of linguistic stuff. We're going to have people who are really love the languages but haven't just haven't got into yet discourse analysis. Other people who are clinging to the languages because they really want to understand the scriptures, but it's not coming maybe naturally to them. It's maybe not a delight to them just yet. So give us your, your 15 second elevator pitch for the person who's going, why do I care about discourse analysis? Well, the Bible is written in language and discourse analysis is one of the best tools that we have linguistic tools uh, to understand language better. And so discourse analysis can help us better understand the Bible because it's written in language. There you go. So we want to better understand the, the, the author's intended meaning. I mean, that's pretty straightforward, right? And, and understanding it at this level is going to help. So um, so unpack for us a little bit. We talked about a, a basic definition and a little bit of what that means. Where is this coming from? Is this a new field? What's the background? Yeah, discourse analysis is, uh, in the broad scheme of things, fairly new. Um, most people, if they're into linguistics, will know of Noam Chomsky. Uh, he's one of the bigger, biggest figures in linguistics in modern times. And um, his 
even his work was kind of relegated to the sentence level. He was really working with syntax and trying to, you know, figure out um, at the sentence level how sentences fit together, how syntax works. And starting over in Europe with what they called it text linguistics over there, uh, but then when it came over here, it became discourse analysis. But starting around the, the 70s, especially, there was this um, growing interest in looking beyond the sentence level because uh, linguists started realizing that there are some really interesting things that happen at uh, above the sentence level. For example, I can put two sentences together that don't seem to have anything to do with one another. Uh, let me just, uh, if I say, for example, um, I'm really hungry right now, there's a guitar in the other room. Now, that doesn't, those don't seem to have anything to do with one another, right? But if if you and I, if I was talking to you and you and I knew that for whatever reason, anywhere there's a guitar, there's also food, then all of a sudden that becomes coherent and that makes sense that, oh, I'm inferring that because there's a guitar in there, there's food Therefore, I'm hungry, so let's go into the room with the guitar because there's going to be food there. Um, so there's some really interesting things that happen. And a lot of the earlier works on discourse analysis that were being put out in the 70s, the 80s, they were focusing especially on uh, these really this really interesting phenomena that occurred between sentences and then all the way up to the paragraph level. So the background is kind of starting in Europe. There's some interest there, and then especially – um, I think a lot of works here in the States and some in, in Europe started looking at these features and how paragraphs hold together, how entire discourses make sense, and how we as interpreters can read things that on, you know, on a technical level of grammar and syntax just don't really seem to make a lot of sense, but we can understand them just fine because of how natural language works. Okay, so this is a somewhat new field, obviously. I mean, people have been talking for a long time and writing for a long time. But to, to really name this and to really kind of define categories is fairly new. What are some of those categories? What are the main tasks involved in discourse analysis? Yeah, I, I'd say there's probably uh, four main tasks that most people who are working with discourse analysis will will, will do with a text. And there's a lot of others, but there's four main ones. So the first is um, finding cohesion, uh, especially among paragraphs and, and within the discourse. But So you might, first of all, divide your text into sections or paragraphs. You'll try to find where are the breaks. And then part of the way you f figure that out is you find, like, where's the cohesion within these paragraphs? So cohesion is the use of linguistic means to signal coherence. And coherence is the ability to take uh, a portion of a discourse, like a paragraph, and to read that, and as an interpreter, to fit everything in that paragraph within a single mental representation. So you might have one paragraph about going to the movies and watching a movie, and if everything in that paragraph fits with that scenario, with what you as a reader know about going to the movies and watching a movie, then it will be coherent to you. And cohesion is using linguistic devices such as conjunctions, um, lexical repetition, uses of words that relate to the movie theater like seat, uh, soda, pop, and uh, popcorn, and screen. Think using words that uh, relate to that topic. And so those would all be instances of cohesion. 
so you divide the text up into chunks like paragraphs and sections and divisions. Um, and then you try to find cohesion within these sections and show how paragraphs fit together. And as you're doing that, that can give you a lot of insights about uh, what the author is trying to say. And then you try to um, determine whether these paragraphs are coherent and how they're coherent and why they're coherent. Uh, so those are two of the main things, cohesion and coherence. And the other two things, uh, one of them is prominence. So there's, an, there's a, a theory that in language, there's always a more prominent idea and a less prominent idea when you put two ideas next to each other. So, for example, a grounds statement is always going to be less prominent than the, the main statement. So you might say, um, uh, like the use of gar in Greek, for example, to mean for, that gar statement is always going to be less prominent. So there's going to be a main statement and then a gar statement that um, explains further why you've said that or what you mean, etc. But it's that main statement that is most prominent. So if you're trying to say, well, what's this discourse about? you will find the most prominent statement in the discourse. So you start at the paragraph level and you try to find the most prominent idea in that paragraph. And then you juxtapose paragraphs to one another and you say, which of these paragraphs is more prominent than the other? And you're looking at the linguistic means that people use to signal prominence. And so there's all sorts of books written on this. And, um, this is what commentators do this a lot. They try to find the more prominent idea. And the final task of discourse analysis that people tend to do uh, is look for something you call peak. So this was an idea, especially uh, Robert Longacre. He taught at UT Arlington, and he was a really big pioneer of discourse analysis. And a lot of his students did dis, um, dissertations in this area. So peak will be somewhere in the discourse where you'll see kind of a grammatical, grammatical turbulence. So you'll have um, a bunch of odd forms that haven't that don't occur in the rest of the the discourse so maybe you have a bunch of uh, subjunctives all of a sudden or maybe you uh, you've been seeing perfective aspect all throughout uh, the discourse and all of a sudden you see a bunch of imperatives or you see a bunch of um, imperfective aspect or something like that then you might think that oh this is maybe kind of a climax or this is a uh, a peak and so the the author's really wanting to emphasize something here everything's building up to this, kind of like the climax to a movie. So if you take those four things together, those are kind of four major tasks that people do with discourse analysis. And, um, you know, there's there's no, like, really um, perfect methodology. There, it's just you kind of take these different tasks and you, you start working on the text, and you'll just get different insights. It's not like you're looking for one specific insight or one specific uh, goal out of looking for cohesion. It's just that as you do it, it helps you understand the text better. It helps you to see how the discourse fits together. And in doing so, you'll be able to catch a lot more of the meaning uh, that the author's trying to get across. And I think that's probably what's going to be of most interest to our audience. That's probably what's of most interest to me is, okay, so how is this helping me better understand the Scripture? What am I going to miss if I'm not catching some of these things? So so help me out. Somebody who's not you know, a linguist, who's not going to study discourse analysis in depth, who's not going to really do discourse analysis when they're exegeting a, a text of Scripture. Maybe they're writing about it um, for biblical theology or systematic theology, or maybe they're uh, writing a lesson or a sermon, um, what benefits can they reap from the world of discourse analysis? 
Yeah, I'd say there's two things. Uh, the first is that you can try to find commentaries that utilize discourse analysis. Now, they're often not going to be explicit about it. They're not going to say, um, you know, like there's here's the evidence for cohesion in this paragraph. But what they'll do is they'll say something like, uh, in this paragraph, uh, God the Father is the main actor throughout. You know, he's the topic here because uh, the, the, the noun theos and pater occurs six times in this paragraph. But in the next paragraph, you have spirit occurring five times, and the Father is not mentioned. So there's a shift from focusing on God the Father to focusing on the Spirit. Now, if you're focusing on the sentence level, all you see is a string of sentences where there's some sentences that say God the Father, some sentences that say the Spirit. But if you start chunking those into paragraphs and look for cohesion within the paragraphs, you'll start to say, okay, this paragraph's about God the Father, this paragraph's about God the Spirit, this paragraph's about God the Son. And in Ephesians 1, that's actually what you see is uh, you see the Trinity occurring there in 1, 3 to 14. And uh, there's three different little paragraphs if you divide it up that way. And one is about the Father, one's about the Spirit, one's about the Son. So um, commentaries will do this, but they'll often not be explicit about it. But the commentaries that focus on the flow of thought and the relationship between sentences and those sorts of things are commentaries that are often utilizing discourse analysis in either a formal or an informal way. And those will be really beneficial uh, for you to read. Um, the Fontes Press commentary on James by William Varner, that's one that utilizes discourse analysis uh, in the background. He's actually written a volume that is a discourse analysis of James, but then he takes that and he builds on that by actually writing a commentary. And all that linguistic stuff is in the background and it's informing what he's done in the commentary. Um, there's um, the, the second way is, uh, more briefly, there. I'd say the biggest thing for people who haven't studied discourse analysis and don't want to read all the books on it, is that you can find um, some works that talk about the semantic relationships between sentences. Uh, so there's a book called Inductive Bible Study, and it talks about that. There's also... Um, the, the website that's, uh, what is it, BibleArc.com, it's uh, used by John Piper and uh, people who are into that. So it's a very similar thing, and all it is is tracing the flow of thought between sentences and then uh, maybe marking which sentence is more prominent, and you're trying to find the main idea of a paragraph. So you could use, like, BibleArc.com. I think that's what it's called. We could maybe have a link to that in the, the podcast episode. But there's also some works that describe here's all the possible uh, connections between a sentence. You can have an inference. You can have a grounds. You can have a reason. You can have a purpose. And if you're able to master those um, things between sentences, then when you're reading your Bible and it, you see the word for, you can say, okay, so this is kind of a grounds or a reason. And it's a less prominent point than the main statement. What is the main statement? And as you're preaching or preparing a lesson or preparing a sermon or whatever, if you can try to focus on the main point of the author, and make that the main point of your sermon, um, then you know you can have a very effective sermon or teaching that communicates what the biblical author wants to get across instead of, for example, uh, let's say you had a main statement plus a gar statement and another gar statement and another gar statement. Well, maybe that final gar statement really grips you, and you just want to teach, make the whole sermon about that. Well, you've made kind of like three levels down in importance. You've made that the main point of the sermon. So discourse analysis can can help you try to get across um, as you're teaching and preaching 
the main point of a passage more effectively than if you were just kind of linguistically naive and, and didn't really care to look for that kind of stuff. I think that's important too, because I mean, if expository preaching, which I would assume, you know, those of our listeners who are preachers are primarily committed to that. If they're this invested in languages and the text, then they probably want to present it as it is written. But that's something that doesn't always come out just um, as you're reading, you know, kind of a cursory reading in English. Um, I'm glad for resources like Bible Ark, and I'm pretty familiar with John Piper's kind of focus on trying very, really, really diligently. Um, I'd be really curious to know if he if he's digging into the originals because he, you know he'll do this look at the book thing where he's looking at the English text and it's like well I hope your translation was good um, because you <laughs> might be you might be emphasizing the wrong thing in English uh, just to make all of our uh, listeners insecure about studying their English text um, which is not really the goal but maybe should be a little bit myself included um, but I, I totally hear what you're saying because it's really easy to to look at a text and say, well, I'm going to include the basic ideas here, but this is really the one that I think is most important. But it may not have been the emphasis that that author was trying to give. Even if it's maybe more emphatic in the whole of Scripture, it might be less emphasized here. So, for instance, and you can tell me, maybe we'll have a little segment here uh, called Did I Do Discourse Analysis Correctly? Okay, (laughs) so recently looking at Luke 12... Uh, we'll say 13 through, I think it's 22, uh, the rich parable of the rich fool in Luke. And Jesus will command, be on guard uh, against all covetousness, uh, against all greed. And then he'll say, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So the, the doctrinal basis, the grounds for this command is, well, and he'll reveal later, being rich toward God, that God is the one who you're in whom your life consists. But the actual emphasis you would say then of this text is that command, be on guard, look out. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So especially the fact that it's an imperative. So that's going to carry a lot more weight than an indicative statement, especially if you have a reason. So if you have an imperative followed by a reason, that imperative carries much more weight because uh, the ground doesn't really do anything on its own. The mm-hmm. author clearly wants to move you to, to take action. And if all the author said was, one's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his, of his possessions, then you wouldn't know what to do with that. But if the author said, take care, be on guard against all covetousness, well, you can obey that whether you understand it or not. So the imperative has more weight because it's more central to the author's purpose. And here, I mean, taking the whole thing... Right, we're talking about emphasizing and how to emphasize, but not to not to then negate any of the rest of the text, right? But to properly situate the rest of the text. Clearly, right. Jesus here wants them to understand the basis for this command, and yet the command is what should be emphasized, right? I mean, would you say that that's a healthy way of looking at it? it when it comes to analyzing the text, yes. Now, when it comes to preaching and teaching, um, it might be that. You know, you have a bunch of rich people in your congregation. And so uh, the command is very important, and that's maybe the main point of your sermon. But uh, you might feel like you need to spend 20 minutes uh, supporting and giving examples of this statement that Jesus makes that one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So you might give stats and figures and evidence and just support, say, look, I know you know that Jesus is right, but let me just show you from experience in the real world that he's right. And you just hammer that for 20 minutes. On the other hand, if you have a really poor congregation, 
you might not even need to talk about how one's life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions because they don't have any. And so they're just like, yeah, that's right. You know, they just know intuitively that, yeah, like my family's important and my, you know, they're not going to believe that their possessions are a big deal. So when it comes, discourse analysis is huge on the, um, the interpretive end, but then when it comes to teaching, uh, you know, I know you know this, but um, then you take what you've done in your discourse analysis, your exegesis, and then you try to say, what's the most effective way of communicating this to my audience? And, you know, I, you pastored and I, you've done a lot of preaching, so I know you know that. Uh, but i um, talking to myself here, I guess. You're, you're trying to tell me as an exegete that I have to actually illustrate my points for my congregation? Every now and then. I mean, I don't know. Okay. If they pay you to do it, you should, I guess. <laughs> Well, I guess we'll we'll leave that one to the jury. Um, let them but if decide. you're volunteer preaching, man, it's like an hour of straight exegesis. Just That's go for right. it. Exactly. That's perfect. Oh man, I actually sat through a sermon like that once. I'm sorry. It was an hour. It was an hour, <laughs> it was an hour exegesis of uh, an Old Testament passage, and uh, he was a volunteer preacher. And just, yeah, but um, it was it was very informative, uh, <laughs> but um, it just was not a sermon. I understand. Thank you for making that clarification. I could get on that soapbox, but uh, it would only make me average height if I did. So I might as well just stay down here where I'm at. Um, some of our listeners have no idea. They just assume for my silky smooth low voice that I'm six foot two. Um, maybe Let's not. Let them I don't keep know. thinking that. Yeah, we'll let them keep thinking that. <laughs> Oh man, um, I'm glad to bring it back down to earth a little bit. But let's let's talk let's talk to the nerds, okay, for a second, because I love the nerds. Yes, I'm a fringe yes. member of that group of people. I'm not really full fledged, but I'm a fringe member. Um, and some of them are like, no, I I love this. I want to get into this. I think this is super important. That's how my brain works. What kind of people should study this? And this is a twofer. What kind of people should study this in depth? And what areas do they really need to get into? Anybody who's interested in exegesis, if they're a nerd, I would say that discourse analysis, if you, find, if, if you study the right resources, then discourse analysis can only help you. It can only help you understand language itself. And look, I mean, I'm not even talking just exegesis of the Bible. I'm talking like um, a conversation with my spouse. I can, I can put together her discourse better and understand her better. Uh, because, you know, you might say, what in the world does that have to do with that? But if you start thinking, uh, you know, through the lens of discourse analysis, you can start putting things together. You can start thinking, well, what's the main point here? What's what's she really trying to get at? And all the rest of this is just supportive material, and it's obviously important, but there's a main point. And it can really help you just in dialogue to help better understand other people and help them to better understand you. Um, anyway, so... For nerds, discourse analysis can only help you, but well, let me talk for a minute about um, kind of a good path to getting into this. Is that is that fair? I think it's more than fair. Okay. So discourse analysis, uh, around the, especially around the 90s, took this huge turn into the social sciences. And so discourse analysis now is utilized in almost every field of the social sciences. It's utilized in different ways. It means different things. If you there's a bunch of handbooks of discourse analysis now, and if you pick up one of those, you'll go through the chapters and you'll just see all the different uses that it's put toward. Um, so when we talk about discourse analysis uh, relating to ancient written texts, it's going to look a lot different, and it's going to look more like those four things that I talked about: cohesion, coherence, 
peak and prominence. Um, so a, a great place to start, um, a great first book is it's a maybe a little bit advanced, but it's called Discourse Analysis. It's by Brown and Yule, and it is part of the Cambridge Textbooks in Linguistics series. Um, that is kind of a full-orbed uh, discussion of all the different elements of discourse analysis. It'll introduce you to all the concepts. It's a little dense to read, just a little bit, but it's also very interesting. It has a lot of example sentences and it's just very interesting. Uh, if you want a shorter book to start with, you can start with uh, Dooley and Levinson's Analyzing Discourse, A Manual of Basic Concepts. And that's a very, uh, it's a much shorter work. Uh, I think that um, it's not, you know, it's, it's not going to be as comprehensive as the Brown and Yule textbook. But um, if you could read those two, those would be very helpful. And from there, if you want to look at prominence, um, there's several works that will introduce you to that, but um, one of the uh, <clears throat> one of the ones that you can buy on the SIL website, it's not even on Amazon, it's called The Semantic Structure of Written Communication, and it's got three authors, but it's on the SIL website for, for purchase. And then they have an entire series called the Semantic, uh, let's see, it's called A Semantic and Structural Analysis of, you know, and then of the New Testament Writings. So these are volumes that take this method that's laid out in the semantic structure of written communication, and they apply it to different New Testament writings, and they have charts and graphs, and it's actually just a discourse analysis. Um, what they're doing in that, though, they're really just tracing the relationship between sentences and prominence. They're not doing a lot of the other stuff that Brown and Yule are doing, like uh, looking at cohesion and coherence and those sorts of things. And beyond that, there's a whole, uh, an entire host of works in discourse analysis that you can get into. And um, on the Exegetical Tools website, I actually have a, an annotated bibliography of discourse analysis resources. So if we could link to that, then people could click on that. And um, I've annotated a lot of these different resources to talk about how useful they are and where they could go. But um, Brown and Yule, great place to start, and uh, the, the writings of Robert Longacre as well. Um, they're, it's far more technical, though, so if you get into that, it's going to be very technical. Also, one other writer is, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but uh, Toon Van Dyck, I think, is um, uh, another writer who's really, um, he's got a, a work called Text and Context that um, a lot of people have read and utilized, and he uh, kind of advanced this notion of, um, oh, of macrostructure. And so when I talk about there being a more prominent point, you know, between paragraphs and then between sections, a macrostructure is kind of like the main point of the entire discourse. And um, in text and context and some other works, Toon Van Dyck talks about how to um, find that macrostructure and, and understand what it is. So... Those are some of the initial works you could get into, and then you could uh, look on the uh, annotated bibliography for further works as well. And if you're listening to this in the summer of 2019, you can pick up a copy of Fontes Press's new volume on discourse analysis. Is that about right? That I that would be great if we could have it out by then, and I, I think we might. And in that, I will have an introductory chapter that um, – you know, in a, in a more concise and um, documented manner, talks about all these things that we've just talked about. 
and uh, you could find a lot of sources in the footnotes. And then the, the, the book itself is called A Discourse Analysis of the New Testament Writings, and there's going to be a chapter per writing or per corpus of all the New Testament writings. It's going to be a very large work, but it's going to be actually applying um, the author's, each author's methodology, applying that to the New Testament writing. So you'll get to see the variety of uses of discourse analysis, the variety of methodologies, and you'll get to see which are useful, which are not as useful, um, and the different results that come about when you apply different methods of discourse analysis to different New Testament writings. It should be a really, really useful work for this field. Good. That's exciting stuff. I'm glad for that to be out soon-ish. It's exciting for the five people that are going to want to buy and read it. You know what, maybe, you know, I, I just am envisioning just a spark of interest in discourse analysis, you know, maybe traceable back to this podcast. Who, who knows? What I really think you need to do is just transcribe this podcast episode as the introduction to the book. I'm just oh. saying, um, and it's going to have words in it like periwinkle and mm. uh, fiddle-faddle because I'll I just have, said I'll them. I'll have to check with I'll have to check with Fontas Press and see if they'll allow yeah, that. Check with Fontas Press. You you check with Fontas Press. Um, I'll I'll check. Yeah. Oh gosh. Okay. Well, hey man, I, I think this is interesting. I really do. Again, as somebody who's who's just very much on the fringe of this, as probably a lot of our listeners are, I see the value of thinking structurally about a text and thinking about uh, what is really being emphasized and what's not being emphasized. Um, I'm, I'm excited to to see kind of how that comes along, and I think probably there's there's already a good bit of that in some of the commentaries that we're using. Would you would you speculate with me that there's probably going to be more and more of this popping up in commentaries? Yeah, I do, and there's even a a commentary series right now. Um, if I can Amazon it real quick, uh, who is it? Daniel Block, maybe on Ruth. Uh, yeah, the Zondervan. There's an exegetical commentary in the Old Testament, but then there's also another series that's out right now, and it's yeah, it says Ruth. The subtitle is a discourse analysis of the Hebrew Bible. Hmm. So there's even a, a Zondervan commentary series. It's called. The Exegetical Commentary on the Old Testament, subtitle, A Discourse Analysis of the Hebrew Bible. So th- that series is utilizing it. Um, there's a commentary coming out on Colossians by Greg Beal, and um, I forget what series it's in, but he uh, he's done the same thing. He's done a discourse analysis of the entire book, and then he doesn't use the lingo. He doesn't use the lingo, but it's just all in the background informing um, especially as he talks about the flow of thought uh, uh, in that letter. So, yes, I think you will see a lot more of this as biblical scholars continue to kind of see its usefulness. And there's often this uh, delay by biblical scholars to to take new methods and apply them to the text because we don't want to take a method that's only going to last for 10 years and then flame out of popularity and then we've spent 10 years studying it, utilizing it, and all of a sudden everyone realizes it has some kind of big philosophical problem or whatever. So I think that now discourse analysis is becoming known as a good tool, and people who want to invest time into learning it and learning how to utilize it well uh, are going to continue to do so. And we'll see more resources popping up here and there uh, to help people understand it and even learn how to use it if they want. Good, that's helpful. Well, I'm glad to hear that it's not a passing fad. 
that is nice to know. I really hope this has been sure beneficial for our for our listeners. I got to hit you with the the recurring question: What passage of scripture are you dwelling on here lately? Oh well, that's that's hard because you just asked me that earlier. Don't say uh, Romans. So now I have to. No, I will not say Romans eight. Now I got to come up with another one. Um, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, Philippians four thirteen. <laughs> yeah, just just keep going. Um, that's all the scripture. I no, no, you know, I, I I guess the other thing I've been reading lately uh, is um, I just finished Second Chronicles, and um, that's it's always kind of just a punch in the gut to read Chronicles, uh, Kings and Chronicles. Because um, I remember the first time I read it, when I read through the Bible all the way for the first time, uh, you know, last month. And uh, what was it, probably 10 years ago or something like that. But I read all the way through for the first time, and I'm reading through the kings. And every time I came to a new king, it would say, um, you know, one of the, to one of the good kings. is like, and he followed the way of his father David. And I think, yes awesome you know maybe finally there's going to be a good king and then i would read and re- and then ah oh, every single time they let you down and i just remembered the the sense of uh feeling so frustrated and so let down whenever i couldn't just find a king who would be obedient and worship god and be faithful and so every time i read kings and chronicles and get near the end i just have that experience again of remembering how i felt but also um, zooming out to the wider picture of the Bible, um, seeing how how much greater Christ is as a king, a Davidic king, and how he's finally the one that can come and fulfill those hopes and who won't let us down, who won't make us go, ah, again. Um, so I, I always enjoy finishing up Second Chronicles and getting to the end there and seeing uh, not the end of the Davidic line, but uh, maybe a little bit of hope at the very end when there is a, still a Davidic king alive but realizing that none of them are going to live up to the task and uh, only Jesus will. Amen. We can, uh, we can dwell on that for a while. Hey, thanks so much for being here, Todd. All right. Thanks for having me.